That was wonderful. The singing this morning has uh, lifted my, my spirits. You know, um, there's many reasons why we should be in the house of God on Sunday mornings. Uh, Romans 12, 1 tells us, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We meet to worship God and to honor Him. But one of the benefits of being the house of God is it has a way of changing our outlook and changing our attitude. I believe, generally speaking, when you leave church after being blessed with the presence of the Lord, you go home with a little different attitude than you'd had when you got there. I really believe that. You go with a different feeling. You go with a different outlook. You go with a different uh, attitude. Uh, it, it should be the case anyway. Even if you came with a good one, you should leave with a better one. Okay? Uh, our outlook should be different. We should be encouraged. We should be, um, you know, stronger to face the challenges of life. This morning, I'd like to take a look at the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. It begins by saying, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sin, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation in time past, walking according to the flesh, fulfilling desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, in the second and third verse, Paul speaks about walking according to the course of this world in time past. Now, he says, by implication there, you walk indifferently. In verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, before which he hath ordained that we should walk in them. Yeah, we have, we have the word walked in verse 2 and the word walked in, in verse 10. The first walk is according to the course of this world. That was in time past. But the second walk is in good works before which God hath ordained that we should walk in them. In other words, the new birth, being born of the Spirit of God, should produce a change in the way we live our lives. If somebody says they've been born of the Spirit of God, but yet they live their life now just like they did in times past, and there's been no change, really have no basis to make that claim. Again, listen. Where in times past you walked according to the course of this world. This world has a course. You'll notice in verses 2 and 3 that we have our three chief enemies brought to our attention. Wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, enemy number one. According to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, that's enemy number two. And then in the third verse, it says that we walked in a way to fulfill the lust of the flesh and of the mind. The flesh, our human nature, is enemy number three. Now we have to face those three enemies every single day that we live. No exceptions. That's why it's so important that we put on the whole armor of God that's listed for us in Ephesians chapter 6. In verse 10 he says, Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. That's what you're facing today, my friends. In the circumstances of the world today, you're facing 
spiritual wickedness in high places, principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. So we put on the whole armor of God, which gives us a helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. Our loins are girt about with truth. We shot our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And we take the sword of the Spirit to quench the fiery darts of the wicked. And that shield of faith. And above all things, prayer and supplication in the Spirit. The armor of God is not just to be looked at and admired. The armor of God is to be put on and worn. It's not to be worn several hours a day and taken off, but it's to be kept on continuously, perpetually. It's not to be hung up in the closet for a day or two. It's to be worn all the time. And when that armor is on, you have the ability then to defend yourself against the world, defend yourself against Satan, and defend yourself against your own human nature that you have to carry around with you 24-7. But let's take a look at verse 1 before we get more into that. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Now, in times past, that was your condition. That's why you walked according to the course of this world. But now he says, and you hath he, he is God, and you hath he hath quickened. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sin. The word quicken, as used in the New Testament, means to make alive. In the Old Testament, in several places, such as Psalms 119, it's used to mean to revive. Such as when David says, uh, quicken me, O Lord, according to thy word. And when David wrote that, obviously David had a living, vital relationship with God. But he wrote about the benefits of the word of God, how the word of God can revive us. You know, ever since this pandemic started, a ton of information has, has come out from the, from the so-called leaders and experts throughout the world, right? And I think you would agree with me at this point, as we look back on all that information, some of it's been true, and some of it's not been true. Some has been very accurate, and some has not been very accurate. And so over time, you have to kind of separate and cull it out. What do you know that's been established as the truth? But when you read the Word of God, you don't have to do any culling. When you read the Word of God, you're reading truth, my friends. Whether you understand it or not, you're reading truth. That's why Paul told Timothy, to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman he not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. In God's Word, there are no contradictions. There are no errors. There are no mistakes. It is the infallible Word of God. We have it by divine inspiration. We have it by divine preservation. So when I read this word, I know without a shadow of a doubt, I just read the truth. I may not fully comprehend. I may not fully understand it. But I know I've read the truth. And there's so many places in God's word, when I read it, it revives me. I know I just read the truth. And the truth will help make me free. That's what the Lord said in John 8, 32. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The apostle said in Romans chapter 3, in the opening verses, he said, What advantage hath the Jew? Much in every way, for unto them was committed the oracles of God. He goes on to say, Therefore let God be true, and every man a liar. When you read the words of men, you need to try them against the word of God. If it holds up, fine, you can accept it. But if it contradicts God's word, you know God's word is true, and what you've heard from men is not true. It is a lie. 
So we need to stick, keep our heads in the word of God, especially at this time, I can assure you, we need to keep our heads in the word of God. There could be no revival in our land today if we're not putting our heads in the word of God. So Paul says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespassing. That word quickened means to make alive. We find in John 5 and 21, the Lord Jesus Christ said, for the Father, as the Father raised the dead, and quickeneth them. Now notice this expression. It's God that raiseth the dead and quickeneth them. That tells you there the word quicken, if you didn't even define it, if you didn't look for the definition, that would tell you it means to make alive. It'd be one thing to raise a body out of the grave and you still got a dead body, right? You just have a dead body out of the grave. But God doesn't raise the body out of the grave to leave it in a dead state as we have examples in the Word of God, two in the Old Testament, at least five or six in the New Testament. We have three examples where Jesus raised somebody from the dead. He just didn't bring the body out of the tomb, but when the body came out of the tomb, as in the case of Lazarus, Lazarus was alive. So as the Father raiseth the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. The same power that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. As the Father quickeneth them and raiseth them from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ quickeneth whom he will, makes alive whom he will. You see, there's the sovereignty of God in that. It's God's choice. Now, four verses later, in verse 25, Jesus said, And verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. That's just another expression of what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2, 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead and trespasses and in sin. You've been made alive by God. God's the only one that can give life to the dead. Now, this world's about 6,000 years old, according to the biblical account. Now, if you go to various places and zoos and things of this nature, you're going to be told the earth is millions of years old. So I'm going to let God be true and man a lie, right? I'm going to tell you the earth is 6,000 years old. Somebody say, well, it takes thousands of years just to produce certain things you find out in nature. That may be true, but God didn't have to take 1,000 years to do it. When God made man from the dust of the earth, he didn't make him a baby and he grew up to be a man, did he? He created him a man already in a mature state. So much of this earth here that may take thousands of years to produce certain, you know, minerals and things of this nature, whatever, God can make it just like that. God doesn't need millions of years to do it. The biblical account states that the earth is about 6,000 years old. Now during this 6,000 years, God's blessed man to accomplish many things, many wonderful things, many beneficial things, many profitable things. And some things it hasn't been so beneficial and profitable, but many things that we enjoy today as a result of God blessing man to be able to develop it, to invent it, to accomplish it over a period of time. But one thing man has never been able to do is this. He's never been able to raise anybody from the dead. He has not been able at this point to keep people from dying. And he never will. He never will. He has not been able to keep people from dying and he's not been able to give life to somebody that's already dead. But God has, and God can, and God does. He's the only life giver. 
Ephesians 2, 1, And you hath he quickened, hath made alive, that were dead, what? In trespasses and in sins. When we go back to the book of Genesis and read chapter 2 and chapter 3, we find where God gave instructions to the first man on this earth, Adam, and told him he could eat any tree in the Garden of Eden except one. That was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said, The day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now this is extremely important right here. This is a foundational truth I'm trying to teach you right here at this point. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. In that day when Adam transgressed, which you read in chapter 3, where he ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, a death took place, a death occurred. Now as a result of the death that occurred, that I'm going to say something about, there's at least two other deaths came as a result of that. The word death means separation. When a person passes this scene of life, there's a separation of spirit and body. The spirit departs from the body. Adam is going to be driven from the Garden of Eden. He's going to be separated from that wonderful place where he was created and had the opportunity to live in for a while and could have continued that had he not transgressed God's law. But God drove him out. And he put the east side of Eden there, a flaming sword which turned in every way and cherubims to keep man from entering back into the garden. Then several hundred years down the road, Adam dies a physical corporal death as a result of his transgression with sin coming into the world. That's why people sin. Romans chapter 6 verse 23, For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I might say something about this verse a little bit later, but right here I want you to notice the two sides of this verse. For the wages of sin is what? Death. Wages is what you earn. We deserve death, in other words. We've earned it, have we not? Through Adam's transgression, through our sinful nature, through our sinful practices, death is something we have earned. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life is not based upon works. Eternal life is not based upon wages. Because eternal life is something we do not deserve. Eternal life is God's wonderful and gracious gift to his children. I hope you see the difference and distinction between the wages of sin is death and the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sin. In man's nature, he's dead to God, the things of God. He's dead to spiritual things. And he's just as dead to God, the things of God, and spiritual things as a person is dead after they draw their last breath and become dead to this physical realm of this earth in which we live here. One death just as powerful as the other death. You've got two deaths. I want you to see that. Man's not able to get himself out of physical death. A man's not able to get himself out of a spiritual death over here. It requires God to do both. God has already proven, we have biblical examples of how he's able to raise people from the dead. He raised a man from the dead in, the, in, in Elijah's ministry. He raised a, a man from the dead in Elisha's ministry. And then he come over here raised Jairus' daughter when she was 12 years old from, from death. He raised the widow woman's son who had died and was on the way to the cemetery, raised him from death. And then we have maybe the most familiar example, the case in John chapter 11 of Lazarus being in the grave for nearly four days, dead. Now being dead four days, he was no more deader 
than the widow's son on the way to the cemetery. No such thing as dead, dead, or in deadest. You understand that? If you're dead, you're dead. All right? You don't get deader over time. God raised him from the dead. But now I'm talking about a different type of death. I'm talking about the one of John 5 and 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Can the dead hear anything else? Can the dead hear your voice? Can the dead hear my voice? I can go out in the cemetery and, and preach the gospel out there in the cemetery. If God would bless me, there would be no rejoicing because they can't hear me. But there's one thing they can hear, and that's the voice of the Son of God. And the Bible says they shall hear it, and they shall live. Sometime in your experience in the past, you heard the voice of the Son of God. That's why you're here this morning. You're here this morning because you believe in God. John 14, you know, John chapter um, 14, 1, the Lord Jesus Christ said, You believe in God, believe also in me. Every born-again child of God believes in God in his heart. It takes the gospel of Jesus Christ to inform them about the Lord Jesus Christ for them to believe in the Son of God. I hope you saw the difference there. Every born-again child of God is taught in his heart to believe in God. The divine nature of God is planted within their heart. But to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there has to be a knowledge up here of that. See, there's an inward knowledge that God gives to his children. Let's go over to John 6, 44 and 45, when the Lord Jesus Christ said, No man can come to me except the Father who sent me draw him, and I'll raise him up again in the last day, for they shall all be taught of God. He did not say they shall all be taught about God. Teaching about God's one thing, being taught of God's another. You believe in God's cause, you've been taught of God in that divine nature. He put in your heart and regeneration and being born again that enables you to believe in God. But you read the Bible and you come to the house of God to hear Brother Lawrence preach and other men who fill, fill this pulpit to hear the story of Jesus. That you might know that Jesus Christ is God's beloved Son. That Jesus Christ is the second person in the Godhead. That Jesus Christ came to this world about 2,000 years ago, lived for about 33 and a half years, and saved his people from their sins. That's the good news and the glad tidings and the gospel message and the message never saved anybody eternally. The message about the event. There's a big difference between the event and the message of the event. The event and the, good, and the news of the event. And not all news you hear about certain events is good news, that's for sure. But when you hear the true gospel in Jesus Christ, you're going to hear good news. When you hear the gospel in Jesus Christ, the pure, unadulterated gospel in Jesus Christ, it's good news, it's glad tidings. And if we ever needed good news and glad tidings, it's right now. But I'm going to say you have needed it in times past. You might not appreciate it as much in times past, and you need it back then, but you sure need it now because the only place I know you're going to get it is right here. You're not going to get it on the television, I can tell you that. Ah, boy, I'm telling you one thing, we're watching less and less and less, which is a good thing. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sin. That's your condition, and man in that condition has no ability whatsoever to change it. You can preach to him till you're blue in the face, but he's just as dead to what you're preaching to him and talking to him about as a man in the cemetery would be if you went out there and offered him 
a, a steak supper. There'd be no appeal. There'd be no response. If you offer me one, you'll get one. But you would not get one if you offered it out there. I can assure you that. So then he's going to tell you a little bit about your past. It's not very pretty. When in times past you walked according to the course of this world. The course of this world is anti-Christian. The course of this world is totally opposite from the pathway of discipleship. In times past, you walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now, not children in disobedience, which would be true, but it's children of disobedience. It's almost like he's saying disobedience is a person. And the Bible does this from time to time. If you go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 9, verse 1, Psalmist says, For wisdom hath built her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. He says, Wisdom is a she. Wisdom hath built her house, her person. Wisdom has built her house. She's hewn out her seven pillars. Here he says, The children of disobedience. Now look at verse 3. Among whom also we had our conversation in times past. The word conversation in the Bible means a lot more than words we speak. It means thoughts we have. It means acts we do. It means the actions of our life. The way we walk here in this life. That's, that word conversation embraces it all. So he says, among whom, the children of disobedience, we all had our conversation in time past, use, there's the expression times past again, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling desires of the flesh. That phrase there has reference to the very carnal-based desires that exist in our depraved nature. Fulfilling desires of the flesh and of the mind, the first has reference to our lower parts, you might say. This has reference to our higher intellectual part, but it affects man entirely. His mind, his heart, his soul, his feelings, his emotions, it affects him totally and completely. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The nature of the elect is exactly like the nature of the non-elect. The nature of God's children is no different. I'm talking about human nature. The human nature of God's children is no different than the human nature of those that are not God's children. The human nature is identical. And by nature, we're the children of wrath, even as others. Now, I want you to think about the wrath of God just for a moment. When John the Baptist came preaching, he was baptizing people in Jordan's River. It's in all Jerusalem came out to where John was at. And that ought to teach you the word all has limitations to it. That does not mean every individual that lived in that area that day came to John's baptism in Jordan. But John the Baptist didn't baptize everybody that came asking for baptism. To the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he asked them this question, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John says, there's wrath to come, and who hath warned you to flee from it? In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven on all ungodliness and unrighteousness. 
And there's plenty of ungodliness and unrighteousness in the land today, and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven about it. Okay? Now, what about the Lord's people? Remember, by nature, we're children of wrath, even as others. In Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, Being justified, therefore, by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Something people don't hear a whole lot about. But I can assure you, it's real. The wrath of God, just as real as the mercy and grace of God. But Paul said, being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We've been saved, the Lord's people have been saved, delivered from the wrath I'm talking about through Jesus Christ. And then we come over here to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 1 and verse 10. And Paul says, And you that are troubled rest with us. He says, For there shall be the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God nor obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting punishment, everlasting destruction rather, from the presence of the Lord. And the glory of God. In the book of First and First and Second Thessalonians, you're going to have a theme in both epistles concerning the coming of the Lord and the attitude we were to have concerning the coming of the Lord. There were some in that day who thought the, the Lord's coming was going to be so nearby they actually quit their jobs. That's when Paul says, "He that worketh not shouldn't eat." He's talking about somebody who has the ability to work, has the health to work. He's not covering every category of mankind in that statement. But everybody who's physically able to work and don't work, Paul says, well, they aren't going to work, then they shouldn't eat. There were people actually quitting their jobs because they thought the Lord was coming back real soon in their lifetime. But there's two pictures of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to contrast to you here this morning, and I want you to think about both of them. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13, the Apostle Paul said, I not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep in Christ, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so those which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Notice this is the word of the Lord that Paul is speaking here. He says, this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. For the Lord Jesus Christ shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God. And those which are asleep in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, I love that view, don't you? Oh, I love that scene. I mean, you don't get a, a better funeral message than that one right there. When you're talking over the body of a loved one, God's people sitting out there who've just grieving in their hearts. Paul said, I not have you ignorant, brother, concerning them which are asleep in Christ, that you sorrow not. Why? Because there's coming a day when there should be an ultimate deliverance and all the family of God will be together and be taken home to glory. But let's take a look at the other one. Let's take a look at 2 Thessalonians one in ten, I just mentioned a while ago. Paul says, to you that are troubled, rest with us. He says there's rest in what he's about to say. For the Lord shall appear with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance 
on them that know not God, nor obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason they didn't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is because they never knew God to begin with. Who know not God, nor obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. That's another picture of what's going to happen at the end of time. Which one do you like the best? Well, over here, I like this one the best, don't you? I get a lot of comfort out of this one. But I also need to see the other one because if it was not for what God's grace has done for me and the salvation of sinners, my friends, through the blood of Jesus Christ, I'd be facing this one over here. I'd be facing this one over here. I'd be facing the wrath of God. I'd be facing the Lord coming again with his mighty angel in flaming fire, taking vengeance. That's going to happen. And I know I've mentioned this to you a time or two over the years, but I had a first cousin one time, said, Brother Lawrence says, uh, why, why don't the primitive Baptists preach more about hell than heaven? And at the time, my answer was, well, since none of them are going there, I prefer to tell them where they're going. And I'm going to still stick to that. But I also need for you to know that there's a real hell and there's real wrath that's coming and real vengeance that shall be executed by God when he comes again. But those here at the church of Ephesus was given the wonderful, glorious message that they had been delivered from the wrath to come. Delivered from the wrath to come. You know, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 1, 8. And you've probably heard me say many times, this is one of my favorite verses. This is one of my favorite verses. They're all different verses. Well, the first thing you know, every verse in the Bible is going to be my favorite verse, I reckon. But what's my favorite verse today may be based upon an experience I'm going through currently. You know, but one of my favorite verses is this. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8, 9, and 10, Paul said, I not have you ignorant, but concerning our trials and trouble went through in Asia. He says, how we is pressed out of measure, above strength, inspired of life. But we had the sentence of death within ourselves, and we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which what raiseth the dead, who hath delivered us from so great a death. That's something that's already been accomplished. And death delivered, and whom we trust he will yet deliver. Now that second deliverance is something we can experience daily. There's not a one of us here this morning that knows a number of times God has delivered you from serious injury or death that you know nothing about. And then there's some perhaps you are acquainted with. The Apostle Paul, we read his life in ministry. You go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and you read about all the things he went through, how he was uh, you know, shipwrecked, how he was stoned, how he was beaten with rods, how he'd been in uh, perils of the deep and perils of, uh, in the city and perils among robbers, etc., etc., etc. And we read in the book of Acts where there were times when they tried to come and take the life of the Apostle Paul and time and time again, God delivered Paul from death. But there came a day that Paul died. And we read about the life of David. 
How many times do we read in David's life where God intervened providentially to deliver him from Saul, who was trying his best to slay him, and then from his own son Absalom? I mean, time and time and time again, David had a deliverance that came from the hand of God providentially. But the day did come that David died. I can give you experiences here this morning to where I know had God not providentially intervened in my life, I would have already died. But I know one day will come and I will die. Here are deliverance that come upon us on a regular basis every single day that we live, right? I remember my dad. I was just probably maybe 12 years old. Lived on the farm. Raised tobacco. One day I'm in the backyard doing something. I don't know for sure what now. It doesn't matter. And I looked and I saw my dad walking toward me from the field, holding his arm. And I could tell he was hurt. My dad had been on a tractor disking a piece of land. And people know what disking is. You got a tractor behind the tractor. You, you got what's called a disc, which is a, um, a, you know, a, a big round steel blades that cut up the land. He was out disking a piece of land when he ran over a hornet's, uh, uh, excuse me, a yellow jacket's nest. And the yellow jackets just came swarming all around him and just really attacking him. And he made an attempt to get off the tractor without stopping the tractor, going kind of a slow speed. When his pant legs caught the brake pedal and swung him up under the tractor, and the tractor ran over him. Now, I'm not talking about one of these gigantic tractors you see up in Indiana and places like that at 10,000 acres of land, thank the good Lord. A Ferguson tractor. Anybody remember what a Ferguson tractor looked like? It looked like the Ford tractor back in that day. Swung up under the tractor. Tractor runs over. The disc runs over him. My dad had on what they call a turtle shell hat. Remember those? Like people in jungle wear. Farmers used to wear those. Called turtle shell hat. Very, very hard. And he had that hat on. And he put up his arm like this, and the blades came across and cut his arm pretty badly. We had to take him to the hospital and have stitches put in. But thank God he lived. God delivered him that day. You just don't get run over by a tractor and a disc and usually get up and walk away from it. My dad was in the military. He was in the United States Army. And he fought in the Philippines in World War II. When he left to go into the Philippines, in the Army, in the war... He had a wife and about a three-year-old son at home. He fought over there in the Philippines, and God blessed him to come back home safely to that wife and little boy. And then a few years later, I came on the scene. Had he not been delivered out of the war, I wouldn't be here this morning. That's two times I know my dad was delivered, and no telling how many other times God delivered him along the way. I just thought about that this morning. But I'm looking for an ultimate deliverance. I'm looking for that time when the Lord shall come and deliver us out of this world, from this world, and we shall be reunited in body, soul, and spirit and taken home to be with the Lord in glory. That's the ultimate deliverance we're all looking for, right? 
That's the ultimate deliverance. God who has delivered us from so great a death and death deliver, in whom we trust he will yet deliver, that's the one we're all looking for when we're taken away from this world to be with him in glory. Now we've been delivered from the wrath to come. And then he turns the tables in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. Uh, this is a, turn of a, a, a complete turnaround now. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love. He speaks about the riches of his mercy and the greatness of his love. But God, who is rich in mercy and great in his love, even when we were dead in trespasses and in sins. Now to me, this is one of the greatest examples of God's love in the Bible. He loved us even, Paul said, when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now when you see what man's like when he's in debt, dead in trespasses and sins, and you read about this in Romans chapter 3, it says there's none good, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's no fear of God before their eyes. A poison lip, uh, of wasp is under their lips. And they open their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. The way of God they have not known. That's man and his human nature. And yet God loved his people even when they were dead in trespasses and in sins. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is God did the miraculous thing of loving the unlovable. What's lovable about a person that's not good? What's lovable about a person that's not righteous? What's lovable about a person whose feet is swift to shed blood? What's love about a person who opens their mouth and their mouth is just full of cursing and bitterness? Some people learn a vocabulary in school and some people learn a vocabulary on the streets. Here's somebody learn their vocabulary on the street. They open their mouth, it's full of cursing and bitterness. It comes out of it. There's no fear of God before their eyes. I've illustrated like this in the past. If I knew somebody like this and I came to you and I said, I got a job for you. I got a, a, a task for you. You say, well, what is it, Brother Lawrence? I'll be glad to do it. I got somebody I want you to love. Well, who is it? Well, I'm not going to tell you the name, but I'll tell you something about them. <laughs> they're not good. And I tell you this, they're not right. And every time they open their mouth, it's full of cursing and bitterness. Underneath their tongue is a poison of ass. And there's not the slightest fear of God in their life. What would you say to that? But God, who's rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and in sin, God just didn't wash us up and love us, my friends. He loved us before he was ever washed. Somebody said, Brother Lawrence, you got a verse for that? I sure do. Revelation 1.5. On him that loved us and washed us in his own blood. Notice the order. He didn't wash you and love you. He loved you, thank God, and washed you. <laughs> he found you in that condition, my friends, but got you out of it. God, who's rich in mercy and his great love, wherewith he loved us. Everything that God's ever done has been for his glory. But I want you to understand the glory of saving God's children on the cross through the blood of Jesus Christ is the crowning event concerning the glory of God. If Psalms 19.1, Paul says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Yes, there's glory when you observe the creation of God. 
The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day in the day other speech, and night in the night showeth not. There is not a place where their voice is not heard. All around the world, all around the globe, when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, it should bring glory to God as the creator. And then how many times do we read in the Bible of the greatness of God's providence? How that God opened up the Red Sea, how God opened up Jordan's River, how God rained down manna from on high and fed the children of Israel for 40 years. Miracle after miracle after miracle, how Daniel in the den of lions was delivered. How the Hebrew children of fire furnace were delivered, how a virgin brought forth a child. All the miracles that Christ did is recorded in the four Gospels. Glory goes to God in that. We look in Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us when it comes to the acts of God's gracious providence. God receives the glory. But I'm going to tell you something, my friends. The glory of God when it comes to the salvation of his children is superior to all of that. Notice what he says here. But God, who is rich in mercy of his great love, wherewith he loved us, even we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, but by grace he is saved, hath raised us up together, made us set together in heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. That's the verse I'm talking about right there. This is the crown, my friends. This is superior in all things. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of God. His acts of providence that we read about and we've experienced in our lifetime certainly ought to bring glory to God. We ought to praise God every single day for the breath of life we have. Praise God every single day for delivering us time and time again along life's pathway. Praise God for the understanding we have of the truth of the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the list is endless. But above all things, our deliverance from the wrath to come, above all things, the wonderful mercy and grace of God is seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalms 85 and 10, for mercy and truth have met together and rights of peace have kissed each other for truth has sprung out of the earth. Praise to the glory of God is mentioned three times in chapter one in the book of Ephesians. Let's just back up just for a second. Verses six and seven. Paul says, that he hath raised us up together. He, first he says he hath quickened us together. Here's something that we all experience. Here is the a statement Paul has made concerning the representative work of the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of the church. He hath raised us up together. That is, he's quickened us and made us alive in Christ. And then he hath, uh, not only has he uh, quickened us together, he has raised us up together with Christ and made us sit together in heavenly places. Now the expression heavenly places is used back in chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now he's talking about heaven itself. What's Paul saying here? Before time ever began, God pronounced all spiritual blessings been reserved for the family of Christ. And you read about a lot of them right here in these first two chapters of Ephesians. made us sit together in heavenly. When Christ went back to glory, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Let me just tell it to you this way. 
When Christ died, the elect family of God died with him. When Christ was buried, the elect family of God was buried with him. When Christ was resurrected, the elect family of God was resurrected with him. When Christ ascended into glory, we all ascended with Christ into glory. And when Christ sat down on the right hand, the majesty on high, we all sat down right there with him. So how can that be, Brother Larson? I'm talking about by representation. He's our federal head. He's the head of the church by representation. It's just as sure as if you were already there. <laughs> just as sure as you were already there. Now I'm telling you, you're going to be there. And it's not going to be by just representation. You're going to be there right in the, in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Me and that clock, always in competition. But I'm going to win. <laughs> For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Under good works before which he hath ordained that we should walk in them. We were talking about walking according to the course of this world. Now we're talking about walking the pathway of discipleship. And you think of all the different expressions in the Bible concerning our walk. Now, the word walk in the Bible, generally speaking, does not mean taking steps. The word walk in the Bible usually means our life, how we're living our life. In times past, we lived our life by walking according to the course of this world, but now we live our life by walking in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ in discipleship. What made the difference? Go back and read verses 3 through 9, and you'll get the difference. Verse 8, for the grace that you say through faith that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. You know, when a man has a talent and a gift to build something and to make something, he'll step back after he's done all that and oftentimes admire it. I mean, especially if he's good. When I took agriculture uh, in high school, we had to do a project. I built a doghouse. And if I had to put a name on it saying doghouse, they probably wouldn't have known it was a doghouse. I just wanted to get a passing grade. <laughs> but I'm telling you, you're the perfect workmanship of God. God never messed up on a one. Do you know that? He never messed up on a one. How many times has a, a person built something only to go back and tear something off and add back because it wasn't what he wanted? But when God does it, I'm telling you, it is done perfectly. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works before which he hath ordained that we should walk in them. We should walk in the light as he's in the light. We should walk in love as dear children. We should walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. We should walk in the old past. We should walk about Zion. That's a way of life here under good works. The Bible is filled with good works. The Lord said, let your light so shine before men they might see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You want to know what they are? Just follow, study the life of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do? You can sum it up like this. Jesus went about giving. Jesus went about ministering. And he went about healing. He was doing something every single day that could be categorized as a good work and he glorified his Father which is in heaven. Uh, I'm going to close with a little experience that Karen and I had a couple of days ago. We were eating out, 
And there was a, a couple sitting in front of us. I could see the lady, I, her face, but only the back of the man. And uh, they got up and left. And the waitress came over and she said, that couple that was sitting in front of you all told me they wanted to t take your ticket, pay for your meal. Well, that just got away with us. Totally shocked us, surprised us, to say the least. And she said, they didn't want you to know about it until they got up and left and had gone. Well, I would have loved to thank them. I would have loved to express my appreciation for them. And I'm sitting there and wondering, well, why did they do that? And I thought, well, maybe they saw me and felt sorry for Karen. That's the best thing I could come up with, you know. <laughs> but I, I did. I thought, well, why would they do that? And so I couldn't thank them. So I thank God for them. I took them on the time to thank God for putting in the heart of somebody like that to do something kind on behalf of somebody else. So while I couldn't thank them, I thank God for them and I prayed for them that God would continue to bless them. And thank God there's people like that out there. You know, that just, it just really melted our hearts that somebody would take notice and for whatever reason, <laughs> you know, they did that. that that's a good work. And, and the thing about it is they didn't want any praise. They didn't want anything. So they didn't want any recognition. They made sure to tell her not to tell them till we're gone. And so we didn't have the opportunity to, to go and, and say anything to them. I, I would have left to. So I just did the next best thing I knew to do. And that was to take a moment to thank God for them and people like them. May we look for opportunity every single day to do good unto all mankind. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9 he says we have therefore opportunity let's do good unto all men but especially the household of faith. Especially, it starts here in the household of faith and branches out you see. And be not weary in well doing for in due season you shall reap if you faint not.